welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. You can go ahead and start turning there. I've got a picture coming up up here uh, to, to help start our, our sermon this morning. This picture right here was taken in New York City. Back in May, this was on the cover of the New York Times online, all of that. This picture uh, really kind of stirred the world. And the reason is, it's not so much what's going on in the picture. It's the caption that was under the picture. The caption for this picture read, The last payphones in New York City being removed. Now, some of you, some of my, some of my youth that were in here within the youth with me this morning, like, like, you don't know what that means. Like, there was a time not very long ago where if you wanted to call somebody and you weren't at your house, you had to find a little booth and you had to stop on the side of the road and you had to drop dimes and quarters in there and remember the number of whoever you wanted to call and dial that in and call somebody. Raise your hand if you remember that. Yeah, I, those days, those days are gone. As a matter of fact, that this big deal that this is the last one in New York City being removed because 20 years ago, there were over 30,000 phone booths in New York City. And today, zero. What changed? What's different from 20 years ago to now? Yeah, you guys know. It's these little demon-possessed devices that we all carry around, right? Like suddenly, things changed when we got cell phones. They went from being a luxury that only the rich had to something normal for everybody. And today, they're a necessity. Guys, I, I would rather go somewhere without my pants than without my phone. I wouldn't do that to y'all. But I feel so naked without my phone. It's like, what if, what if there's an emergency? What if somebody needs to call me? Well, what if I need to call somebody? What if the Razorbacks are playing and I need to see how bad they're getting beat? Like, I need my phone with me constantly. This has changed life. I got my first cell phone two months before I turned 16. I have never known a world where I drive around without being able to be constantly connected. But that's so different than the way it used to be. And I think, how did people live when you couldn't just whip out your phone and text your buddies? How did people live when you had to go pay and carry change to make a phone? How did you remember everybody's phone number? You guys remember that? I can still tell you some of my best friend's phone numbers from high school because we had to remember before we had cell phones. Now, now the reason I bring that up is, is there's been a change in our culture where used to you had to seek connection and now you carry connection with you. And that is such a picture of what Jesus did does for the world when he comes here to dwell with us. Prior, prior to Jesus coming into this world in human form, prior to the word becoming flesh, you had to seek connection with God. God dwelt in a very specific place, in a temple. If you wanted to be close to God, you had to seek him there. But suddenly with Jesus, suddenly now you and I have the ability to walk around connected at all, the, all times. Never far from God, never away from him, n never having to wonder where he's at or look for him. He's with us all the time. We've been in a series, this is our last uh, Sunday in the series called Superior. And what we've been doing is we've been trying to figure out not what does Jesus do, but who Jesus is. And we've been looking through John chapter 1 as the Apostle John tries to introduce Jesus. And here's what he's told us so far in this sermon series. He, he introduces Jesus as what we in our Bible say the word. The, the word in Greek is the logos, which, which simply means the power that holds the world together. 
And then John just keeps throwing thing after thing at us that makes us go, wow, Jesus is amazing. Like He was God. Oh, that's good to know. He was with God. That doesn't even make sense. He, he came to dwell among us. He became flesh to dwell among us. He created everything. And we're looking at Jesus like, wow. Like there is nothing in this world as amazing as Jesus when you really take time and focus on who he is. And John's going to shift gears on us a little bit today, and he's going to tell us more about Jesus and what he does, but he's going to tell us this through a, um, an eyewitness account of somebody else. So John, now when we get to this portion of John chapter 1, he's going to introduce us to a new character. Now, if you don't listen to anything else very closely, I need you to listen to this, because otherwise you're going to wake up from your nap in the middle of the sermon and be very, very confused, okay? So you have John the Apostle was one of Jesus' closest friends. Jesus handpicked him to, to launch Christianity across the world after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's the one writing this book. John never refers to himself by name in the book of John. He never says, I, John. John, he just calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Now, John was a sinner because he's obviously very conceited. Like, I'm pretty sure God loves me too. Uh, you know, actually, I like that. I love John's confidence and the way he introduces himself. There's no question. I'm the one. I had a personal love and connection with Jesus Christ. So that's John the Apostle who's writing this. Also in this book, though, he's going to introduce to us another person also named John. So it can get very, very confusing. So who we're going to be talking about today is John the Apostle telling us the story of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So that's, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I need you guys to understand who John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is. Well, first off, what you need to know is he's a prophet. It's a fancy word for somebody who is a human sent from God with a message. And John as a prophet was crazy. Like, I feel like he's the kind of guy that I just want to get to know and do an interview with and type up an internet article. Like, John lived out in the wilderness next to the river. He ate grasshoppers. You know, he, he's, he's just kind of out there just living in whatever he can get. He had this, this clothes. He didn't wear clothes like everybody else. He found an old dead camel and he cut the skin off of it and he put a hole and he just wears it with a belt. Like, he He's crazy. And he stands out in the wilderness and he's got this message from God. And the message from God is this, is the Messiah is coming soon. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he'll be here. But God has sent me as a forerunner to tell you the Messiah is on his way. You need to prepare yourselves. You need to repent of your sin. And what he would do is as people would receive that message and they say, okay, the Messiah is coming soon. What do I do to prepare myself for this Messiah? He says, repent of your sin and, and I will baptize you. That's why we call him the baptizer. He, he wasn't denominationally Baptist. I've heard that before. He's a baptizer. And so what he would do is he would take people out in the river and he would dunk them underwater. And it was just this, this symbolism in that baptism of the sin being cleansed from you. Just like we all take a bath. He's just saying, we're, we're washing the sin off of you. It didn't save you. It was in preparation for the Messiah. Now, the story we're going to look at today is an interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles open, if you would read with me verse 29, we're going to read 29 through 31. Here's what it says. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am, I am come baptizing with water. If you're taking notes today, our first take-home truth is this. Is Jesus came to dwell among us to take away the sin of the world. 
And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, when he sees him walking down the road, he's like, everybody look! That's, that's, that's a special person. He says, this is Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. It, here's the phrasing he uses. Here's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Now we're going to camp there for just a little bit because this is important. If we're going to focus on Jesus, this is what we need to know about Jesus. After we know that he is God, that he created everything, that he became flesh to dwell among us, we need to know this. He came to take away the sin of the world. Now, I always like to take a second to step back and talk about what, what is sin. Because we kind of culturally, sin's not a very fun, sin's just not a very fun thing to talk about. And, and so what we've seen is like sin is, sin is something that we don't really define very well anymore. Now, we're perfectly, perfectly happy defining it out in the world. Like, we see our world's infatuation with sin, with, like, say, homosexuality or something like that. And we're like, that's sin! God is not happy with that. And we're okay to say it that way. But then we, then we really don't like to come to church and hear Brian tell us, hey, when you hold a grudge against somebody and you don't forgive, that's an egregious sin against God. We don't like to hear ourselves say, hey, hey, when you come to God's house and you've been blessed with so much and you cannot honor God with tithes and offerings that he causes of you, that's an egregious sin against a holy and perfect God. And see, what we've, we've started to do is we've always started to see sin as like the big sins. All those people that are in prison for murder, all those people that are drug dealers, all those people that do all of those bad things. But, but what sin is, is it's the individual times when we are not connected with God. And, and we try to define that in a way that doesn't make us feel bad. We'll say sin is not being perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. It can't be that bad. Sin is missing the mark of perfection. Sin is doing things that are, are outside the will or the nature of God. All of those are true, but all of those are rules-based. Rules you know what sin is? Sin is when we personally reject God. And it's personal to our God when we reject Him. Because He has done nothing but be good to us and love us. And we turn our backs on Him. I mean, let me put it this way. I, a few years ago, I had a, a very close friend of mine. Um, and, and our relationship, we'd been friends since like elementary school. And our relationship grew apart for about five years. And, and it, of course, it had to do with a girl because, you know, girls run good friendships between men. I'm not bitter. Had this kind of falling apart. And it got to where he, he wasn't really like mad at me. Like, but he just, he was too busy. And he really didn't want to hear me tell him he was too busy. So he just quit answering his phone. Wouldn't ever text me back or anything like that. And for five years, we, we were just disconnected. And I carried a lot of personal hurt over my very close friend who had walked away from our relationship. Because I'm like, man, I love you. I didn't do anything to you. And now you've rejected me. And that's personal. It's not because he broke some kind of like rigid rule like, hey, there's a five-minute text back time and you made it or didn't make it. I felt this hurt and this anguish and this pain because I was rejected while I was offering myself to him in friendship. And when we sin, what we're doing to God is we're rejecting him. God's saying, hey, this is the way I want you to do things. And we're like, God, we know better than that. God is saying, I want you to do it. I want you to, to love me and spend more time with me. God, I've got other things to do. I really don't, I really don't have time for that. God, God says, I've got a better way. And you're like, no, no, you don't. My way is better. And here's what we're saying to God. We're saying, I don't think you are good. So I reject you. That's personal to God. 
And listen, when you personally attack or personally reject a perfect God, there are consequences for that. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When, when we personally reject God, what it brings into our life is death. And some of you guys are going, that's a little harsh. Uh, let me put it this way. Heaven forbid, but, but heaven forbid that this happened in your marriage. Heaven forbid that your spouse began to sleep around on you and they cheated on you constantly and you lay in bed alone while he was off in the bed of another woman. Or, or, or you begged him to come back to you, but, he, but she moved her boyfriend into the house. Like, like imagine that was it. There's this rejection of you. And, and if you could handle it this calmly and you walk up to them and goes, hey, I just want you to know, I think our relationship is suffering. It's probably because you're sleeping around a lot. If you would quit sleeping around, I think our marriage would be better. And that person turns, and turns back to you and says, no, I would rather have them than you. What would happen to your relationship? Some of you are getting violent, like, I'll stab them. Like, calm down, calm down. It would cause division and separation in your relationship. Even if you did stay in a marriage like that, where a person non-repentantly constantly cheated on you, even if you stayed in that marriage, you would not be close to them. See, rejection in a relationship has consequences. And when we reject God, there are consequences to that. That is separation from God. And by the way, I didn't just make that example up. That's God's terminology when he speaks of his people chasing sin and idols. He says, you have committed adultery. You have cheated on me. And so we live in this world where we're separated from God because we have this sin in our lives where we have rejected God. And Jesus, his mission here is defined. I'm going to take away sin. And if I take away sin, I take away the consequences of sin. Take away sin, take away the consequences, and he offers that to us. I've got a confession to make. You guys are going to be a little shocked to hear this. Um, <laughs> sometimes I convict myself, and I, I've got some sin in my life I just want to say to y'all. Um, I've become addicted to performing magic. What are y'all laughing about? You think I can't do magic? I, I can do magic, seriously. I have this ritual that I do once a week, and, and no matter how much I try, I just, I can't stop. I make things disappear. At my house, we have all of this undesirable material, leftover food, plastic wrappers, shoey diapers, and those things have got to go somewhere. And I didn't know what to do with them, so I started, I started this magic ritual where I take them all and I get rid of them because if you leave them in the house, it starts to get junky, it starts to smell really bad. And so I found this, this ritual that apparently other people were doing. I'm like, I'm going to try it. And here's what I did. I take all of that trash, every last bit of it, what's behind door number one, and I, I put it in one of these things. Every Tuesday night, I put, I put that trash in this thing right here and I roll it out to the road after dark so my neighbors don't know what I'm doing. And I leave it out there all night and all day the next day and I walk up to it and it's empty. It's gone. Magic. Okay, I don't really perform magic. Like we all know, 
We all know what happens when you put trash in this trash can and roll it out to the road on Tuesday night. Is the next day while I'm at work, some very nice sanitation expert, garbage man, whatever, whatever the title is, comes with a truck and they take my trash away. And with it, they take all the consequences of the trash. They take all the, the dirtiness and the filth and the insects and all of the smells and they take it away from me. That's a picture of what God came here to do for us is to take our sins away. And when he takes our sins away, he takes the consequences of our sin away with it. See, Jesus comes and he sees us and, and we don't know it, but man, we smell bad. We smell like sin. We're dirty, we're filthy. We're bringing unsanit unsanitary conditions into our spiritual lives. And Jesus says, let me, let me take that from you. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. He's lost his mind. That dirty, smelly trash can, I almost didn't bring it in here. It's full of trash. That dirty, smelly trash can does not belong in this beautiful building. And I want you to know, I considered that this morning. And I thought, no, that's a perfect picture of our lives. Is our dirty, filthy, smelly sin does not belong in the beauty of God's presence. But what Jesus did is he came here to take it away from us and to take away the responsibility of it. See, when that trash leaves my house, as much as I like to believe it, it's not, it's magic, it's not magic. What happens is that gentleman comes by in his truck, he takes possession of the trash, and then he takes responsibility for it, and he deals with it in a way I never could. And so for Jesus to take away our sin, what he has to do is he can't just come and go, be gone. Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to take possession of your sin and I'm going to take responsibility with your sin. And so Jesus says, I will deal with your sin so you don't have to. The question is, is how does Jesus do this? If you still got your Bibles open, read with me again, verse 29. So the next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and he says, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Point number two on your outline, take home truth number two, is Jesus takes away the sin of the world by sacrificing himself. And we know that. We know that because of the title that John the Baptist gives him. He says he is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. Now, now to understand this, you've got to understand something about the culture that Jesus and John were speaking into here. This is a culture that associated Lamb with rescue. So in the book of Exodus, this is a major historical event in, in the life of the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, they cannot be released because the king of Egypt says, you will stay here. And so God brings all of these plagues onto, onto Egypt, trying to get the king to let his people go so they can go and find a land. And the last plague that God brings is the angel of death. And he simply says this, I'm sending the angel of death and the firstborn of everything and everyone in the entire country will die. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Is that. The problem is that God's people who he's trying to protect are still there. So here's what he tells them. He says, if you will take a lamb and you will cut it open and you will take the blood that runs out of it, put it on a paintbrush and paint your door, I will pass over you. See, a lamb is represented with escaping death. I, I got a picture coming up here. I, I want the imagery of this to, to make sense. That's a lamb. As cute as it can be, isn't it? In, in the Old Testament, when people sinned against God, what they had to do to sin or to atone for their sin, to go to God and repent of their sin, is they would take this lamb and they would play with it and they would love it. 
And then they would take it down to the temple where they would watch somebody take a knife and stab into it. And they would watch as the lamb kicked and jerked as the blood drained out of it. It sounds kind of gory. But that's a picture of what it takes to take away the sin of the world. And they'd have to be reminded of, this is how dirty and how broken my sin is. That that poor, innocent creature suffered that fate for me. And so when the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God, what, what it says, what, it, what uh, the Bible is saying is that Jesus comes here to take away the sin of the world by sacrificing himself. Listen, Jesus comes to us and he goes, look, that death, that death looks awful heavy for you. You shouldn't live under that all of your life. Let me, let me take it from you. See, here, here's the thing about death, is every person who is born will one day die. A consequence of having life is you will die. There, there's no escaping it, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If you sin, if you're imperfect, if you reject God, you will die, period, the end. I'm not trying to scare you, but that's a, that's a fact. And when we die, we're just separated from God forever because we lived our life with that filth and that nastiness in us. But what Jesus says is, he says, hey, I've got good news. I'm perfect. I'm living, but I never sinned. I don't have to die. So what I'll do is I will go ahead and die. I will take your death on me. That's what the gospel means, is that Jesus takes his death on us. And suddenly it makes sense. Like, why did, why did the logos have to become flesh? Why did God have to come here and dwell among us? It makes sense because only someone who is perfect and who does not owe death is willing to take our death away from us. And you may be sitting here and you come to church and you hear us talk about a cross and you're like, what's so big about a cross? That's what's big about it. I should have been hanging up there. You should have been hanging up there. Anybody should have been hanging up there but Jesus. Yet Jesus was the one on the cross. And he did that for you and he did that for me so that he could rescue us from death. Now, this is what John the Baptist is saying when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's like, listen, this, this guy right here is special. You're going to want to pay attention to him. You're going to put some faith in him because he is the only thing in this world that is going to save you from sin and death. The only thing. Now, that's a big claim. So how, how do we know he was right? How do we know that Jesus is the only way? How do we know that Jesus is anything more than just a person who was executed on a cross? How does John the Baptist know? Keep reading with me in your text. He's going to explain how he knows. Verse 32. And John, that's John the Baptist again. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what John's saying, he says, like, hey, I was, I was sent from God. And I knew a Messiah was coming, but I didn't know who it was. And this is what God had told me as I was preparing the way, is you will see somebody, and when you see the Holy Spirit light down on them, it will flutter down on them like a dove, you know that this is the Messiah. And so John the Baptist calls back to a time when he witnessed this. When Jesus, not because of a need, but to lead by example, came to John and said, baptize me. John baptized Jesus. He put him under the water and he brings him back up. And in that moment, in that moment, they see the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit usually not seen. The Holy Spirit descends out of heaven, floating down like a dove, and it just lands on Jesus. 
And out of the clouds, out of the clouds, they hear the booming voice. This is going to sound familiar if you were here last week. A voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased and love very much. John's telling us something here. John the Baptist is saying, look, there's something special about this Jesus guy. He's not just a person who I baptized. He doesn't just have the ability to perform miracles. I saw him. And when I asked for the proof that he was God, that he was the Messiah, here's what I saw. I saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit come down on him. And God the Father testified that Jesus was his son. That's the the next take-home truth. Jesus was identified as worthy to take the world's sins by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And from this point forward in Jesus' life, there's a connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit up to moments before Jesus' death. There's this connection. And Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit, who is God alongside Jesus, they are both God, along with God the Father, all three God, all three powerful, all three co-equal parts of God. Jesus tells us things like, hey, when, when I'm gone, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit and I are connected. You you will have access to me through the Holy Spirit. I might not be there physically, but I will be there as the Holy Spirit because although we are are co-equal, we are different. And so we see this this picture of Jesus being connected to the Holy Spirit. And here's what, what John tells us. He says that Jesus, he was told by God, Jesus will be able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? To be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean we got to do some kind of special ritual when we baptize, make sure we get the Holy Spirit into you? That's why we put that dove up there, so it looks like looks like the Holy Spirit's coming down on you at baptism. Like, what, what does that mean? Okay, well, first, let's just back up a second and think of what the word baptize means. That word literally translated, if you translate that in English, literally means to immerse or to cover. And we use that word to talk about what we would call physical baptism. Don't get them them, um, tied up on me. Physical baptism versus the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about physical baptism for a second. Most of you have seen a baptism. Hopefully you're going to see a lot more. That's what we want to do here. Think about how a baptism works. We take an individual who has professed faith in God. They become a believer. And the first thing we're to do as a believer is follow God in spiritual baptism. You've seen us do it right up here. And so we bring them up here. And then there's this physical motion of a person standing outside of the water. And and then we push them under the water. And then, believe it or not, I don't look very strong, but I'm pulling people out of the water all the time. Like we pull them back out of the water. That's what a physical baptism is, is to be covered with the water and then to come back out of it. And there's a lot of symbolism to a physical baptism. Number one, it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was alive. He was placed in a tomb underground, and three days later, he came back to life. It's also a picture of what my future looks like and whoever has professed faith in Jesus, what their future looks like. Like we're alive, we're all going to die under the water, but we've been promised we get to share in Jesus' resurrection. We come back. It's also a picture of new life. I am me, but I'm bearing the old me and I'm being made new. Jesus defines salvation this way. He said to be saved is the same thing as being born again. Other places in the Bible say that when you are saved, you are made a new creation. You are new. And so baptism represents all of those things. So now let's let's apply that to what John is saying here about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Actually, let me back up. Let me say this. This is not a baptism sermon. 
but I just feel like I need to say this. If, if you have come to know Christ, the first thing that he calls you to do in following him, if you've put your faith in him, is to follow in scriptural baptism. We can take care of that for you. And I just encourage you, if you're sitting there and going, I feel like I, feel like I did it. I asked God into my heart. I put my faith in him. I repented of my sins. I followed Jesus. You're not following him until you have followed him and what he's calling you to do. You're not doing what he's asking you to do, which is what you committed to do when you were saved. So if that's you today, I just want you to know I'm going to be right here in about 10 minutes. Come talk to me. It's time to get that taken care of. Now, let's apply this imagery to what it's talking about with uh, baptism. The, the baptism is explaining, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is explaining the Holy Spirit being given to us, meaning, meaning that we are flooded or covered or immersed in the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? So here, here's three things about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are given, point A on your outline, is proof of ownership. Ephesians 1.13 says that the... Uh, the <clears throat> Ephesians 1.13 says that receiving the Holy Spirit is the seal of salvation. Now, some people would tell you that you don't receive the Holy Spirit until well after you're saved. That those are two different things. You profess faith in Christ, and one day, maybe ten years later, you receive the Holy Spirit, and it has to be seen. That is absolutely not true, completely unbiblical. The truth is, is the moment we put our faith in Christ, the moment we say, God, will you save me? The Holy Spirit is given to us. And the Bible says that that is a seal of our salvation. It's like an official document back in the day. What they used to do with a government document is they would take wax and they would pour it over a document that had been finished and had been completed and they sealed it. They'd put that wax on there and they'd stamp it with a stamp or with a ring and it bore the seal. It was sealed, it was finished, it was completed. What the Bible says to us is that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. It is the proof, it is the proof of ownership of God that we belong to Him. And listen to me, if you have truly been saved, nothing will ever take your salvation away. God has promised not to leave us or forsake us. Nothing you can do can make you unloved. Jesus Christ has put his seal on you. You are his forever. Hey, you got amen. Okay, so the second thing that the Bible tells us is that with the Holy Spirit, when baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are given a constant connection. This comes from 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says this. It says that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit dwells inside of you. So once we become a follower of Christ, once we receive the Holy Spirit, when we baptize with the Holy Spirit, we walk around with the Holy Spirit within us. That doesn't even sound real, but it's the truth. And any follower of Christ will tell you, I know what that means. I know what it means that the Holy Spirit is within me. It's like that cell phone example we used earlier. I can never be far from God because God is always within me. He's always here. And within me, dwelling within me, the Holy Spirit will do certain jobs. The Holy Spirit will begin to convict you. You'll begin to feel that tug and that pull within you that says, don't do that thing or do do that other thing. The Holy Spirit will begin to teach you and train you. You guys remember those old cartoons when somebody was wrestling with a dilemma and they'd have like an angel and a demon pop up on their shoulder and they'd argue with each other? Not at all biblical. But it, but it does give a bit of a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ with the Spirit within you. Within me, I am dirty. I am filthy. I am nasty. I want to do things that, that I wouldn't even pretend to think are okay. But there's God within me who's wrestling with that all of the time. Because God and sin are so opposed, there's the dirtiness within me that is constantly fighting with the Spirit that's trying to get that dirtiness out of me. And God begins to do that. 
The, the Holy Spirit also guides us. The, the truth is, is that if we are owned by God, he has a plan for us. Did you know that God has a plan for you? Wherever you're at. I don't care if you're 10 years old or if you're 98. God has a plan for you that he wants to use you in. He has a plan for you in the church that he wants you to use you in. He has a plan for you at your work. He has a plan for you with your family. He has plans for you. And what the Holy Spirit will do will begin to guide you. And the Holy Spirit will tell you, hey, not those friends, but those friends. Not that church, but that church. Not that job, but this job. The Holy Spirit will begin to take your life over and push you in a direction in which God can use you at the greatest capacity. And my favorite thing, Jesus called the Holy Spirit this. He says, when I leave, I will send to you the Comforter. Because the Holy Spirit is within me, you know, I am never, never alone. No matter what. The darkest day of my life. I won't tell you the story today. I've told it before. Darkest day of my life. I was praying and I was crying. I'm like, God, I just feel so alone. I don't feel like anybody's close to me. I don't feel like anybody can understand what I'm going through right now. And you know what God replied back to me? He said, you've not been alone. I'm with you. And I hurt along with you. The Holy Spirit is there to comfort us. And then the last thing, when we're baptized for the Holy Spirit, we receive new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, that the old man is gone and that we are a new man. That we become a new creation. That we are new. So when, when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, when Jesus gives us this, the only one who has the power to give it to us, we are created new. I love baptisms. Like, back to physical baptism for just a second. And listen to me carefully. I don't want anybody to take this wrong. My favorite thing is, uh, how do I put this? My favorite thing is when a woman gets baptized. And, and here's the reason why. Guys go in the water, we come out soaking wet, we do this with our hair, we're good to go. Ladies come into the water, and there's such a physical transformation. Go into the water, hair's all made, it's been curled this morning, and they come out looking like... Beautiful. They come out looking beautiful. Mascara is running down one side of their face. Right? And you can see this physical transformation. And listen, what I'm trying to tell you is, is that when you go into water and you come back out, you're not going to come out the same as you went in. I was going to take a picture of my daughter when she is happy and dry and what she looks like when we drag her out of the bathtub and show you all the difference between being wet and dry. She, you know, like, like there's, there's a difference. And listen, when you come in contact with that much water, it's going to change you. It's going to change your appearance. It's going to make you cold. It's going to make you look different. When you come in contact with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to change you. You cannot be a follower of Christ. Listen, you cannot be a follower of Christ, a true follower of Christ, and stay the same forever and ever because the job of the Holy Spirit is to begin to shape you and make you more holy and more like God. Jesus came to do these things, and it's important we understand. Jesus didn't come because he wanted you to go to church. Man, I love you. I am so glad you're here. I love this church. But God didn't come here so that you would come to Ramsey Heights. That's not, that's not what Jesus came here to do. Jesus didn't come here so that you would learn to act better. Jesus didn't come here so that your marriage would be healthier. What Jesus did is he came here to change who you are down to the deepest core principle of you, to separate you from sin and give you access to God. Now, I have to ask this question. Is that what your faith actually looks like? Does your faith actually look like you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, that your life has changed, that you have been made new? Or have you simply just been made religious? Let me tell you a story. 
This comes from Acts chapter 19. You can go look it up sometime this afternoon if you want to. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is walking around and, and he runs up on some guys and through the course of conversation, he asks them, he says, tell me about your baptism. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, so there's a crazy man out in the wilderness. Uh, his name was John and he was wearing camel hair and he smelled like crickets and bugs because what he ate all the time. And, and we received the baptism of John. We repented, we received the baptism of John. And Paul goes, well, what about, what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And their reply was, we've never heard of a Holy Spirit. But what Paul, what Paul was saying to them, he's like, hey, what you've got is you've got religion. You did some actions that you thought made you okay with God, but you never got Jesus. That story, by the way, ends with them being baptized in the Holy Spirit, with them coming to know Christ, with Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit on them. I wonder how many people go to church every single Sunday, and we're just like those gentlemen in Acts chapter 19. We go to church, we're measuring our goodness, and, and the truth is we've been baptized in religion. Do the right thing. I'm gonna do do what I've called to do. I got a Bible, that'll be good enough. Some of us are baptized in good works. Let me tell you, a lot of people in our culture are baptized in comparison. Probably okay with God, because I'm a lot better than that person down the road. But but the truth is, the truth is that only, only, only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ can get us saved, can take away our sin this trash can fill it up with trash all the time it sits in my in front of my garage in my driveway not this one this is the churches but anyway you, you know when the garbage man comes and takes my stinky smelly trash away when I roll it up to the road and I offer it to him as a follower of Christ or as a person that wants to become a follower of Christ if we want Christ to take away our sin, if we want Christ to, to make us new, if we want to be a creation, if we want to follow Christ, it doesn't happen because you stepped in a church. It doesn't happen because you wrote a check. It doesn't happen because you did something good. It happens when we take our sin and we offer it out to him and say, Jesus, I can't handle this. Will you take it from me, please? Today, guys, I'm too dumb to tell lies. Today, God's speaking to somebody. If our musicians want to come. Today, God is pounding on your heart and he's saying, I want you to take, I want to take away your sin. I want to make you new. I want to save you. All you have to do, if you're feeling that in your heart right now, is you've got to be willing to offer that sin up to God and say, God, I can't do anything with this. It's yours. I stand up here every single week. The reason I stand up here is not because I look pretty. I stand up here because I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to come up here and say, Brian, can you tell me how to give that sin to God? Can you tell me what it means to put my faith in Christ? I believe with all of my heart, this entire series that God called us to is reaching out to somebody in this room and he is saying it is time for you to be saved. It's time for you to become new. And you can do that today. Don't walk out of here again hoping to get in the parking lot and in the car before God catches up with you. Because what he wants to give you is more precious than gold. He wants to give you eternal life. And you will love every second of it. So today, this is our response time. Maybe you're sitting here and saying, I've made that commitment, but I need to be baptized, physically baptized. Maybe you're sitting here going, I know God wants me to give it to him and I'm ready to do that. Come talk to me. Let's pray it over. Let today be the day that somebody's eternity has changed. Let's stand and worship together.